Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're listening to kind of a little extra we're doing for you. Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. See, I'll get in trouble if I say this, but he might be the smartest person I know. I mean, there's probably a lot of other people who think they're the smartest person that I know. But, you know, it might be Gopnik. I mean, you can't sneak anything by him. I mean, he's just really that smart. And he, when we first started thinking about doing a very special series of shows about the impeachment process, he was one of the first people who popped into my head. Because Adam's already always doing what we like to do, which is thinking about politics and government but melding it with his very keen understanding of history and his sense of how culture works. I mean, there was no way we weren't going to do a conversation with him. So we got him. He's also now, you know, a guy, he's got a whole playwriting thing going on. So I think he was like running back from a rehearsal or something like that to the NPR studios in New York to talk to us. So if he sounds a little out of breath, that's why. But he's never out of ideas. So let's go. Adam Gopnik. We're so excited as part of the show to have someone who has joined our regular show many times. Adam Gopnik is a staff writer for The New Yorker, the author of many books, most recently, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. He recently wrote a piece titled Stop Saying That Impeachment is Political for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik, welcome back. It's wonderful to be back with you, Colin. So you begin this piece by talking about a certain kind of world-weary person, a pundit or observer of the impeachment process. Who... I say afflicted with sleepy sapiens, <laughs> which was my favorite coinage for that piece. I, I, I was... write pieces for those coinages, and that was the one I liked. Right. I, I was actually very envious of sleepy <laughs> sapiens, but I wondered whether you maybe had it copyrighted or trademarked at this point. Yes, this person of sleepy sapiens who says it's a political process. Now, I think usually what that world-weary person means is, so don't try to map criminal jurisprudence right onto this because it's different. But you're saying there's a hazard in using that trope, that this is a political process. I think that there is. And I say in the piece, and would say any in any context, that obviously there's a sense in which every prosecution, every time you indict or arraign someone in any theater for what you think is criminal misconduct, it's partly political. You have to decide if it's worth taking to a jury, if you can get a conviction once it gets to a jury. And that depends in part on the political climate. You just have to think about something as horrible as the Jeffrey Epstein case to see how the political climate in one period is very different from the political climate in another. That's part of the background of all law, and it's we understand it. But when people say that impeachment is political, what they often mean is, as you say partly, that it isn't the same as a judicial prosecution. But they also mean, look, count votes. If you can't make it work, then it doesn't count. It's a political process that has to play out politically, and the winners and losers should be judged on how skillfully they play that political game. And it seems to me that that completely misses the moral weight of impeachment. And in the piece, I call on the spirit of the one-time hero of every American conservative, Edmund Burke, as my guide, philosopher, and friend. 
Right. So you use Burke in this case, that, of which I was unaware, like most Americans, I just assumed we invented impeachment, to talk about how, in fact, in many cases, and we can even sort of play this out a little bit in this case, too, but in many cases, impeachment is driven more by ideals than almost anything else. I mean, an abject failure to reach an ideal in a certain situation. Absolutely. So the the history of impeachment is long and complicated, and Larry Tribe deals with it in his book very ably and so on. But in that particular case, and it was something that weighed on the minds of uh, the founders when they were writing the Constitution and the impeachment clauses, Burke had pursued somewhat quixotically, very quixotically, in fact, the impeachment of Warren Hastings, who was the, it's complicated, but essentially the British governor of Bengal of India. And he had committed gross atrocities against what was then called the native population, the indigenous population. And Burke wanted him impeached and fired. He wanted him removed and he wanted him held responsible for his criminal misconduct. Very few American conservatives are fully aware of the reality that Burke's moral greatness depended on the fact that he was doing the equivalent of prosecuting the Blackwater mercenaries, prosecuting people who had misbehaved in a foreign adventure. That was core to his moral sense. And Burke knew that the impeachment was probably doomed. He understood that the likelihood of his getting a vote for conviction in the House of Lords was quite remote. But he pursued it nonetheless exactly on the grounds that there were foundational aspects of law. There was an idea that Hastings used as a defense exactly what Trump and in the personage of Barr is using as a defense. That is, I'm the magistrate. I'm the president. I'm in charge. And therefore, I have a right for an incredibly wide leeway to say what's right and what's wrong. I should be free to pursue things as I choose to. That was what Hastings said. How dare you micromanage my administration of India? And what Burke said is, if we allow mere arbitrary whim, if we allow the will of a tyrant in any context to trump, (laughs) to supersede the rule of law, then the rule of law will no longer have any meaning. We were talking before we began our official conversation about all the things that Burke either said or didn't say that get ascribed to him. And I think one that may even be in the latter category is, you know, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. That's him implementing that idea, right? That he's not going to win this. But if he does nothing, he's fallen short of the standard he sets for himself. Right. And he's saying that there are principles that are independent of their efficacy in the world, that there are principles we have to appeal to. Now, Burke, if we want to get just a little bit in the weeds here now, Colin, (laughs) thought that those principles fell from the deity. They (laughs) fell from God. God, as did the founders in many respects. We don't have to share that conviction to understand that there is an idea of law, of something that we all subscribe to, that's independent of politics. You know, Nancy Pelosi, who I doubt read my comment, actually put the exact same point that I was trying to put in much more idiomatic and direct language only a couple of days ago. She said, look, there are all kinds of political questions that we can debate. Some of them are of enormous gravity, how we treat refugees, separating them from their parents. That's of enormous gravity. The climate of the planet, the future of the planet, that's a question of enormous gravity. In some ways, it's a question of far greater gravity than the conduct of our foreign policy in Ukraine. But those are properly political questions. How we choose to deal or not deal with global warming is a question that it belongs to the realm of politics. Using 
the power of your office corruptly to benefit yourself at the expense of the nation and to use the power of your office in order to blacken the reputation of a political rival, that goes to the heart of the idea of law. That goes to the heart of the very possibility that we have to practice politics. We can't practice politics at all if the system that supports them has been corrupted by the people most responsible for executing them. That's a difference. And the difference between that idea of the rule of law and our necessary and very significant and powerful arguments about politics have to be kept separate. Progressive people sometimes don't do them. You know, they, you'll hear people saying, well, why aren't we impeaching him for his sexual predations with women? Or why aren't we impeaching him for the government's conduct towards refugees at the border? And so on. But those questions, I think, do somewhat miss the point. It was exactly the point that Burke made. It's exactly the point that Pelosi is making. Some questions, very grave, belong to the realm of politics. Some belong to the realm of principle. The questions that this particular impeachment raise belong to the realm of principle. And when it comes to principle, we can't simply compromise them away because they're likely to be politically ineffective. All right. While you were speaking, I actually changed into the white pantsuit that I keep here in my (laughs) office. And here's a little bit of Nancy Pelosi saying more or less what Adam just said. During the debate over impeachment at the Constitutional Convention, George Mason also asked, shall any man be above justice? Shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? In his great wisdom, he knew that injustice committed by the president erodes the rule of law. The very idea that of fair justice, which is the bedrock of our democracy. And if we allow a president to be above the law, we do so surely at the peril of our republic. In America, no one is above the law. So there you go. And I, actually, well, yeah, Adam, go ahead and react, first of all. Well, no, she's saying exactly what, in less uh, magisterial 18th century language, exactly what Burke was saying when he said, it is a contradiction in terms, it is blasphemy in religion, it is wickedness in politics to say that any man can have arbitrary power. This is exactly the point she's making, that this is not a contest between one policy and another, but it's a contest between the idea of arbitrary power and the idea of the rule of law. So one might ask... Has Donald Trump ascribed to himself arbitrary power? Does he think he has arbitrary power? We offer you now this montage. I think the Washington Post compiled it. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. It's a thing called Article 2. Nobody ever mentions Article 2. More importantly, Article 2 allows me to do whatever I want. Article 2 would have allowed me to fire him. So it sounds but like I wasn't going to fire. You know why? Because I watched Richard Nixon go around firing everybody, and that didn't work out too well. So very simply, Article 2 would allow me to do. I could have done anything I wanted. I don't even bring it up because we don't even get there. Absolutely, I have Article 2. It gives me all of these rights at a level that nobody has ever seen before. We don't even talk about Article 2. So they ruled... No collusion, no obstruction. All right, there you have President Trump, A, talking a lot about Article 2 and also mentioning frequently that he never mentions Article 2. So you have a little of both. So, I mean, Adam Gopnik, this isn't a case where we would have to try to read President Trump's mind about whether he fits the paradigm that you and Speaker Pelosi have set up. He has simply announced it 
over and over. Yes. I mean, he references Article 2, which someone clearly told him about at some point. You know, he heard about it in the playground. It's like sort of like the toxic water <laughs> yo-yo that, you know, passes around the playground. That'll kill you. I got Article 2 on my side. In fact, it's even more specific than that because he said totally unapologetically, that he has a right to demand that Ukraine investigate an American citizen at his behest in an extortionate way for fear of not getting their foreign aid. He said that he has a right to instruct China to investigate an American citizen. So he's been totally open and apologetic about the idea that his power is bounded only by his will and his whims. That's what's at stake here. Now, the next question that's totally fair to ask is, yeah, but what's the point of doing it if you're going to lose? What's the point of a district attorney bringing a case, however just and however powerful the evidence is on the side of the law, that he knows he's going to lose, either through the prejudice of the jury or the climate of the time? And there, I think that the answer is that if you don't defend the law when you see a hugely egregious violation of it, then the law ceases to have meaning. Then the law becomes vacuous. Then the law becomes a vacuum. At a minimum, what this impeachment can do is to make it clear that this behavior is in the minds of an enormous number of Americans, I think the majority, but in any case, a huge number, unacceptable. It puts a censure on that behavior. It announces that it's unacceptable because the alternative would be effectively to make that behavior normal. And that's the great danger with a figure like Trump is that from exhaustion and from a fake idea of shrewdness, exactly that sleepy sapience I cited at the beginning of our conversation, we normalize behavior that should never, ever be deemed acceptable. And, you know, I, I want to make sure another point that you made doesn't get lost in all this, which is that, you know, you can kind of test this question about whether it's a political process or one driven by ideals through history. You point out that Lindsey Graham, as one of the House managers in the Clinton impeachment process, process was going up against a much more popular figure, a guy with very high approval ratings, a guy who had won in a landslide in his second election, as was the case with Nixon, who, of course, uh, won in the ultimate landslide. Uh, the the yeah, greatest landslide in America. American politics. Nixon had won 49 states. Think what we will of Richard Nixon. The notion that an impeachment is an attempt to nullify an election is on the historical record absurd. It's in fact uniformly directed at someone, well, with the Andrew Johnson is a more complicated case, but with Nixon, it was directed at someone who had, unlike Trump, undeniably won an enormous plebiscite, an enormous endorsement, if you like, from the American people. The point of the impeachment, which in those days, Republicans themselves were reluctantly willing to join, was that there was a rule of law that took precedence even over political popularity. Right. You know, I was having a conversation with a Republican columnist that I talked to a lot, and we were talking off the air, a guy named Kevin Rennie. And I said, what would happen, you know, what happens if, for example, they do go to court and try to compel the production of these witnesses like Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton, who so far haven't testified, or they could try to compel the release of the documents, none of which have been released least. And the Trump White House simply says, no, no, I'm not doing it. Imagine the Roberts court says, no, you have to do it. And Trump says, well, I'm still not doing it. And he said, that's when the Republican senators take the walk down to the White House and they say, we simply can't support you in a trial under these circumstances, which I think also points, I mean, if that's right, yeah, Adam, that points to the truth of the argument you're making, that they're not going to wait until there's 57% approval rating of impeachment and removal. They'll wait until some principle that 
that they can't abide the destruction of is being destroyed. So far, we're searching for that principle with right. a searchlight. You know, when <laughs> I have altered my own mind, not that my mind being altered is of any great consequence, but I have about the whole question of impeachment. I was very taken with the testimony of someone like Max Rose, you know, who's the Democratic congressman from Staten Island, who mm-hmm. won an incredibly tough election in a very red district, and who was clearly, for a very long time, very unenthusiastic about not getting porta potties for his constituents' soccer fields, but instead going to them with this impeachment. And that was why Nancy Pelosi was so reluctant to do it, and why, in fact, the Democrats have had to be dragged to this point. But At a certain point, as I said a moment ago, behavior becomes so egregious. And then I think as well, the issue of conscience is so transparent. Every single member of the Republican Senate, at least, knows what Trump has done and they know what Trump is worth. As many people have pointed out, if you could have a secret ballot for (laughs) removing him, they'd probably get something like 100 votes. There's There's no confusion. There's no real doubt. There's simply a political calculation. It seemed to me not a bad idea to make those of a bad conscience own their bad conscience publicly. I may have been too sanguine about that in thinking that you would have people's bad consciences. But as you say, you don't know where this thing will further play out exactly because you're dealing with personality, an autocratic personality, who is not prepared to cede any point to the rule of law. I have to make a little game theory interjection. It would have to be a 99 to 1 vote so that every Republican could at least plausibly claim that that he or she. It's like the blank in the executioner's gun, right? (laughs) Right. We had a firing squad. One guy has the blank so everyone can imagine that they have it. Yeah. Yeah. So I I want to just sort of shift here a little bit. I mean, first of all, the piece is terrific. I think it makes a really great argument. You know, one of the other things that I was thinking about today in connection with your piece was uh, went back and, and read the little introduction that Adam Schiff writes to the Intelligence Committee report where he uses the phrase a president unbound, which has a sort of, you know, John Milton quality to Mm -hmm. it and gets right back to Hastings and everything we've been talking about so far. But it also made me realize that so far, I don't know if it'll go on like this, but so far it does seem like there's almost a divide on these two committees that we've seen so far, especially on intelligence, especially with Schiff. Maybe that's why they call it intelligence. Between almost an Apollonian point of view, if we could boil that down to guided by logic and intellect, and a kind of Dionysian point of view guided (laughs) by urges and chaos, you know, I mean, it's kind of played out that way. There's like a group of people who say, really, let's think about this and let's be careful how we're thinking about this. And the other side, maybe I'm being unfair to them, is kind of just emitting this barbaric yawp. Well, I share, I like your analysis, both the Apollonian, the Dionysian, and the Whitman-esque barbaric yawp. I'll buy all of that. I struggle, as I'm sure you do, Colin, to extend my empathy to those who violently disagree with me and try and understand the counter, the good counter-argument, not the foolish counter-argument about the computer server that's been buried someplace in Ukraine and all the rest of that nonsense. I think that the implicit argument that's being made is, look, we all know what this guy is like. We all know that he's out of control. But we also recognize that very rarely does his out-of-controlness lead to actual harm that either by his own inhibitions, his own chaotic confusion, or by the interposition of the people around him, the worst never happens. The deal doesn't get made, whether that's oafish incompetence or some kind of saving shrewdness is hard to know, but that's the reality. And that to alienate 
my constituents, to alienate my followers by telling them that their vote doesn't count, that their will doesn't count. Forget the will and whim of Trump, that the will of the people who support him can be negated, can be dismissed, exactly feeds the syndrome, the sickness that made Trump possible in the first case. You know, I think Pete Buttigieg is a wise man when he says repeatedly, look, the question we have to address is not only how we remove Trump. The question is, how did we ever get to a situation in which someone like Trump could come within cheating distance of the presidency? So I think that there's a whole realm of reasonable argument and self-introspection that anybody who's in favor of impeachment has to make at the same time as they put it forward. But finally, it seems to me that As I said in the piece, you know, impeachment is not a substitute for politics. It appeals to the principles of law and of duty that make politics possible. If we don't act against arbitrary power, then we're essentially surrendering to it. All right. I think that's a beautiful place to end. We've been talking to Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker, author of many books, including A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism, more pertinent and relevant than ever, a must for holiday giving and the author most recently of Stop Saying That Impeachment is Political, a piece he wrote for The New Yorker. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, Colin. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. 